Well, good morning. My name is Pastor Milo. It's so good to see you this morning. It's so good to have you here in the room. Those of you who are in the room here, I've pre-registered and you got here, so you made it. You arrived. Success. I'm so glad you made it here. Those of you who are watching online, you found the link. You made it. Uh, you're here as well. So thank you so much uh, for doing that. Uh, if you're in the room, uh, we would love for you to jump on the Facebook stream as well. What we have is, a, is many of our congregation, they're watching from home uh, because they either can't be here or they're away from town or those type of things. We want them to feel like they're connected to those of you who are here uh, in the room. So feel free, if you would, to be able to check in there. Uh, as, as Pastor Mario said earlier uh, in our announcement slide, bulletin.randallchurch will kind of give you all the links that you need. Uh, but specifically, if you're trying to jump on where our notes are coming and different things from that Facebook feed, it's facebook.randallchurch.org will get you there as well so that we can interact with each other. And we know that our church is now spread over two different services, uh, meeting on location and two different services online. And so it segments us up a little bit. And the very best that we can do to kind of interact and, and uh, put that, uh, the two worlds kind of together the best that we can, we, we really feel like uh, that's helpful for us to just feel like we're part of the corporate body in that way. So thank you so much uh, for doing that. All right, so let's get started this way. Let me ask you this question, Facebook, if you want to respond there. Those of you in the room, you can respond this way as well. And it's the title of the sermon today. What is your worst case scenario? What is your worst case scenario? There's a lot of different ways that this could go. Uh, I'll tell you, our family... We went away a little while ago, and we were staying in a, in a resort. And one of the family uh, things that we have, uh, like everybody in the family has kind of their job that they can do, and those jobs actually still work even if we're not at home, meaning that there's someone who takes out the trash or someone who does the dishes. Uh, there's somebody who sets the table, all of those type of things. Everyone in the family has their job. And my daughter, Delia, her job is to take out the trash. That's one of the things that she does at home during the week. She has a day that she takes it out. And so while we were away, I asked her, uh, Delia, it's your day. Would you take out the trash? We don't need it here uh, in the condo anymore, and the dumpster's over there. And so she went to the dumpster, uh, and, and when she went through the subdivision and made her way over to the dumpster, in the middle of the day, the heat of the day, as she gets there and she pulls back the dumpster and she starts to throw the trash, she met the worst-case scenario for her as she pulled the thing open. She reaches in and she goes to put the trash bag in, and what does she meet but a raccoon staring right back at her when she went to throw the trash. And so she did what any middle school girl would do. She screamed, ah! and she ran all the way across the subdivision back to the condo, back up to the room to tell us that there was a raccoon in the dumpster. And I said, well, okay, well, where's the trash bag now? She said, ah, uh, it's next to the dumpster. You know, and, and so then she I made her go back because I was a good father, and I sent her all the way back and made sure that she put the trash in the dumpster. Now, if you have been here in church before, you know that this is actually a throwback story to the fact that I shared with you a while ago uh, that we're going camping this week, and the experience that I had while camping uh, is that I went in the middle of the night carrying the trash so that it wouldn't be in our tent. We wouldn't have critters getting into our tent in the middle of the night, and I walked across the campground, went to the campsite, went to the dumpster, and what happened? But at the dumpster, I pulled back the thing, and, and, and those of you who are in the room, you can reenact this moment with me, okay? So if you want to reach over and grab the front edge of the pew in front of you and pretend that you're peeking into the top of the dumpster, which is kind of tall because you're going to throw trash over the top. So you lift up the top of the thing and you peek in and what do you meet but a raccoon staring back at you in the dumpster. And so what do you do as a grown man? You scream like a middle school girl, ah! 
and you run away, and then you come back to the tent, and your wife asks you, she says, well, what did you do with the trash bag? And you say, it's on the ground next to the dumpster. What is your worst-case scenario? If you're going to let me take this alone, I have to tell you that I am not alone. In fact, there's an entire movement, if you will, of this. There's a website devoted to worstcasescenario.com. You can check it out later. There's all of the worst-case scenarios. What are you supposed to do in the worst-case scenario? Like this, in case you don't know. How to jump from a building into a dumpster. That'd be a useful one. Uh, how to survive if your parachute fails to open. I don't know if that's a first-case uh, uh, first-person account of how to do that or not. Uh, odds would be that it's all hypothetical. How to land a plane if necessary. How to fend off a shark. Uh, or this morning I want to share with you is a public service announcement. How to fight off uh, if you have to wrestle an alligator. In case you're wondering. If you're attacked, go for the eyes and the nose. Use any weapon you have or your fist. Okay? If its jaws are closed on something you want to remove, for example, an arm or any other extremity, Tap or punch it on the snout. Tap, tap, tap. Alligators often open their mouth when tapped lightly. So maybe it's important to tap lightly. I'm not sure. Uh, they, may drop, they may drop whatever it is that they have taken a hold of and back off. Uh, seek medical attention immediately, even for a small cut or a bruise, to treat the infection. Why? Because alligators have a huge number of pathogens in their mouth, and this might, what? Kill you. So make sure that you take care of that as well. Uh, what's the worst case scenario? The reason why we're doing this, the reason I'm talking about this, this worst case scenario, is because we're in this sermon series called uh, The Movement. And as we're talking about this sermon series called The Movement, what are we at right now in Acts chapter 8? So open up your Bibles, get yourself to Acts chapter 8, is that the church is facing the worst case scenario. This young church is facing the worst case scenario. And when you're in the worst case scenario as a church, what is the church going to do? What is this early church going to do? Now this is uh, week three of this new sermon series, but if you've been with us, we've been uh, in the book of Acts since uh, Easter Sunday. And so we began in Easter Sunday seeing how the gospel is moving out uh, through the book of Acts and the Holy Spirit moving through the book of Acts. And you kind of see the shift that is happening here uh, as we are coming through. This is the third week in Acts chapter 6. There's an adjustment. Acts chapter 7, uh, we hear Stephen's sermon. And then Acts chapter 8 uh, is where we are at this morning. This is the worst case scenario for a new church. This is the worst case scenario. If you were going to start a movement, this is not the way that you would want to start. And so let's find out what's going on. Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, worst case scenario, it goes like this. And Saul approved of their killing him. They're talking about Stephen. We read about him last week. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. All except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. He went from house to house. He dragged off both men and women, and he put them into prison. All right, so this is the worst case scenario. If you're the early church, at this point, we believe that there's about 10,000 people in this new church that is beginning to grow and beginning to catch fire and beginning to, to really have a movement that has started. This movement that Saul is going to make certain is going to come to an end. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 6, Saul talked about his life before Jesus. He said he was so jealous in his religious faith that he persecuted the church. 
So Saul supervising is what we see in Scripture of the execution of Stephen was just one example of his persecution. Now, if you weren't here with us last week, you need to be reminded what happened was Stephen, he is speaking the gospel, he is sharing the gospel, and he, he tells the story arc of the way that God has moved through the Old Testament, and he'd be able to connect the dots of how God is working through Moses and working through all of the prophets and making his way to the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who has come. And he builds this argument, and what do they do but call him a blasphemer, take him out of the, of the judges' chambers, drag him into the street, drag him down the street to the, to the outskirts of the town, and there they stone him, place the stones uh, on a pile above him, and, and then all of the cloaks that they had while they were doing this, they lay them at young Saul's feet because he was approving of this. And what we see here under Saul's supervision is this execution of Stephen. He was doing so with great pride. He was very excited about the fact. You almost get the impression of, of Saul uh, now as he is going from house to house. He is going hunting. He is going out and looking for Christians by which he can hang up on the trophy wall. It was something that he found great joy in. Stephen's death is only the beginning, and we see here as they are moving from place to place, he is going and pounding on door after door and dragging people out into the streets, both men and women, and pulling them and putting them in prison. So some people are reluctant to persecute, but Saul wasn't a reluctant persecutor. He was happy to do this. He was very excited. He took great pleasure. And as I said, Stephen's persecution and Stephen's stoning is just the beginning. The floodgates of persecution are now coming down on Christians. These devout men, it says, are making great lamentation or mourning deeply for Stephen. And in the middle of their mourning, now, now that they have come to face, face to face with their enemy, this Saul, as they are dealing with that and, and handling that, they, they're, they're not even having time to mourn uh, for Stephen because uh, everyone else was being, uh, was being persecuted. Some of you may remember this, not many of you, uh, but with a church that spreads its age demographic as well as we do on January 8th, 1956. Some of you would remember this. On the shores of a lonely river deep in the jungles of Ecuador, five missionaries were murdered uh, by natives there. And all they wanted to do was talk about Jesus. And to many, these murders seemed senseless. It seemed like a senseless tragedy. How could it be that only five young missionaries who, who had their entire careers ahead of them, had their entire mission work ahead of them, had it cut short? They barely even got off of the tarmac. And now there was going to be five widows. There was fatherless children all left at home. But God did tremendous work through those five men, even in their deaths. And the blessing still reverberates through people like Elizabeth Elliot, one of the five women whose husband was murdered there. In the same way, Stephen's death might seem like meaningless at first glance. When you, when you look at it, when you see it, this, this looks like this is a dead end. But even so, we, we also seem like there, there doesn't seem like anyone is immediately saved as a response to it or anything like that. No, instead, they disperse. They run from place to place. <coughs> but it's always been the case. The blood of the martyrs is the seed by which the church continues to grow. So worst case scenario Things look pretty bleak here for the church. Things look pretty desperate here for the church. Worst case scenario, what do you do? 
what do we do? What did we do? We bought toilet paper, right? Worst case scenario, we went out and we bought toilet paper in droves. We bought as much toilet paper as you could possibly imagine. Some of you right now have closets that are full of toilet paper. And the rest of us are still mad at you for that. Because if I wasn't employed by a church where nobody was coming for a little while, I would have been in a little bit of trouble. But I was able to raid the closets here at the church. That's not really part of my message this morning. Let's move on. Worst case scenario, what do you do? What do you do? Well, we need to remember this. First point, remember who God is. Worst case scenario, remember who God is because God will always accomplish his will. Remember who God is because God will always accomplish his will. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 is the thesis statement for all of the book of Acts. And it says this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. Acts chapter 8 verse 1. It's like a memory trick for you. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 was where it was stated. Now here it is in 8 verse 1. On that day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem and all except the apostles who were in Jerusalem were scattered throughout where? Judea, Samaria, and then the rest of the book of Acts will continue on until the uttermost parts of the earth. Worst case scenario, what do you do? Remember who God is because God will accomplish his will. God will accomplish his will. Acts chapter 1, like I said, it's the thesis statement for the book. Everything that you read in the book of Acts, you'll always come back to this statement. You'll always see this statement uh, just as, as, a, as a framework, as an outline for where the book is going to go. And he clearly tells, Jesus clearly tells, there on the mountain, he's telling his, his followers, he's telling his disciples uh, what is going to happen. And he is laying out for them because he can see all things because he is omniscient. And he points out for them, he says, the gospel is going to ripple out. And it's going to ripple out out of Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria. But they don't know that that means it's going to ripple out because of persecution. But when he is telling them this, he brings the gospel where? To Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. Are you getting it? The book of Acts entirely tells this story. But at this point, in Acts chapter 8, now that Stephen has died, now that the church is being persecuted, worst case scenario for the new church, they don't know what's actually going to happen. They don't understand what's actually going on. But what's actually going on is that God will always accomplish God's will. This persecution was part of the larger story that God was telling. This persecution is part of the story of God's will being accomplished. God can, God will, and God always will use pressing circumstances to guide us into his will. When everything is fine, we often uh, continue to stay in our, what is most comfortable for us. That's just our natural human condition. When, when things are comfortable, we like to stay that way. Uh, when things are, are rough, we don't want to go out into the battle. But crisis often opens our eyes to where we have to go, where we have to be, how we have to change our course. And that's what you see happening here. They were more than content to stay there in Jerusalem. But because of persecution, you start to see them go out. And sometimes we have to be shaken out of our comfortable state to do what God has called us to do. Remember who God is. God will always accomplish his will. Worst case scenario, what do you do? Is your second point. Remember what God does. 
God will always mobilize his people. Just remember. Remember what God does. God will always mobilize his people. Look at verse 4. Watch how this happens. Verse 4. Pay attention. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip specifically went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip, they saw the wonderful signs he performed. They all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks and pure spirits came out of many, and many of those who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. What do you do? Worst case scenario, remember what God does. Because God will always mobilize his people. God will always push his people out. And when he does it, the end result is always going to be the glory of God. What is the chief end of man? It is the glory of God. Because this persecution serves to spread the message. Now we shouldn't think of the people who were leaving Jerusalem as professional preachers or as professional evangelists. These were just normal people. They were were being pushed out because of persecution and they find themselves in this situation teaching and preaching and sharing and being a witness to what the gospel has already done in their lives lives. Most people come to Jesus through normal people, not through a professional preacher, a professional evangelist. Let me say that again. Most people come to Christ because of normal people. Normal people. Let me just, so yes, the preacher, the evangelist, we're weird people. But normal people like you, that's where most people, when they come to grips with the fact that this normal person that I see in the workplace day after day, this normal person that I run into in the grocery store, this normal person that I grew up with, I went to grade school with, and the power of Christ seems to just continue to drive every one of their decisions. The power of Christ seems to keep them on the right track. That's the person that actually has the most influence for the sake of of the gospel. Remember what God does. God always mobilizes his people. You see Philip here. Philip is listed with Stephen in Acts chapter 6 as one of the first deacons. One of the first deacons who was doing what? He was, he was speaking with power. He was, the Holy Spirit was working through him. And you see all of these reflections uh, that the writer here in Acts is teaching us. Luke is teaching us how he, he demonstrates some things that look an awful lot like Jesus Christ. That there was, uh, there was impure spirits coming out. They're paralyzed and the lame were healed. And then the following uh, result is that there was great joy in that city. All coming from this ordinary man named Philip. Philip was with Stephen. He was one of those men who was called and being asked to serve in the local church. To take care of the Hellenistic widows. Those who were, who were coming from more of a Greek background. And they were being overlooked by the Hebraic Jews. And he is making sure that they are getting fed when it comes to uh, the dispersion of food in the area. And that's where he starts. But so much more comes out of Philip's life. Because he goes out and he talks about, he is a witness to what God is doing through the gospel. He's one of those who is forced to flee here because of persecution. He ends up in Samaria. Remember what God does. God will always mobilize his people. Let me illustrate one, one, one way further. Remember in the Old Testament, you have an entire book, the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah is built around this premise because Jonah does not want to go to where? To Nineveh. 
He doesn't want to go there. Those God-forsaken people there, he doesn't want anything to do with them. And so he gets on a boat and he goes in what direction? Does he go towards Nineveh? No, he goes towards Tarshish. He goes in the opposite direction, trying to get as far away from where he'd been called to go, where God's will was going to be shared with these people. He went in the opposite direction. But if you know the story, whether it's because you grew up in Sunday school and you heard it there because you know your Bible well, the, the, the book of Jonah teaches us that he went through tremendous trials. He went through tremendous pain and suffering. He gets thrown off a boat, thrown into the water. A whale swallows him, a great fish swallows him and brings him back to Nineveh. Why? Because God will always mobilize his people. And when he comes back to Nineveh, he shares the truth. He shares God who is going to demonstrate himself to these people. And he does so in a way that gives us an illustration as we look forward to the Messiah in that example uh, to be able to see what God does to save those who are far from him, which leads us to our next point. Not only do we remember what God does, God will mobilize his people. Check this out. Allow God to work through you. Allow God to work through you. Worst case scenario, you must allow God to work through you because through you, God will reach the unreachable. Through you, God will reach those who previously looked like they were unreachable. Not the person next to you, not the professional preacher, not the missionary. God will use you to reach the unreachable. Uh, there's an author, Bob Roberts, who's written a book called Glocalization, the idea of both local and global missions work, that there are no closed countries. There's plenty of closed countries when it comes to mission work to missionaries, but there are no closed countries for people who are uh, business executives. There are no closed countries for people uh, who are doctors. There are no closed countries for people who are doing social justice work. There are no closed countries for those people. Why is that an important thing for us to realize? Because that means that we can go anywhere and share the gospel. Allow God to work through you because God will reach those previously thought to as unreachable. Jump down to verse 14. Allow God to work through you. God will reach the unreachable. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Allow God to work through you. God will reach the unreachable. Now, we've already read that Philip was there in Samaria. But it is very key for us to take note here that it is Peter and John that are going to Samaria. They are responding to, uh, there's, there's a call for backup almost. You see, the, the Jews had rejected the gospel again. When, when Stephen is on trial, when Stephen calls them out and points out the inconsistencies with their argument why they cannot see Jesus Christ as the Messiah, the one that they had been waiting for, they fight back against it. They push him out and they start to persecute the early, persecute the early church. And so now we see God not only offering salvation to the Jews there in Jerusalem, he is offering salvation to other peoples, beginning with the Samaritans. Now, we cannot continue here without talking about the point of who are the Samaritans. And we've talked about this many times, but we've got to make sure that we don't miss this and just fly through here and miss the point that's being made here. They're going to the Samaritans. Who are the Samaritans? Well, 600 years before this time point, the Assyrians conquer northern Israel. And they deport all the wealthy, all the middle class, and they take them out of the area. 
and all that's left is the poor, uh, the, the poor Jews that are left there. And the pagan population, the Assyrians, intentionally send their people into to intermarry and destroy the pure race of the Jews. They intentionally did this to make sure that there would no longer be a race of the Jewish culture be available anymore. That's why they had them intermarry with the Assyrians. It was an intentional choice. It was a militaristic choice to destroy this culture. And so because of that, the Jews, the, the, the remaining Jews hated the Samaritans for this because it's a reminder of it. The Jews hated the Samaritans. And, and my son Elias, if he's listening today, he would say, oh dad, you, you, you don't use that word. You can't say that word. That's a bad word. The word hate. But they hated the Samaritans because of it. They considered them to be the face of the compromise that had happened 600 years ago. And so there's this deep-seated prejudice amounting to hatred that happens between the Jews and the Samaritans. That's why when Jesus tells the story that most of us are familiar with, the story of the Good Samaritan, why that was so difficult for those to swallow around him. And what do they do in that example? They are ready to stone Jesus as well because he is blaspheming in that case. Who would ever consider the Samaritans? In Luke chapter 9, so Jesus meets in Luke chapter 4, Jesus meets the woman at the well. Excuse me, John chapter 4 meets the woman at the well and gives her, uh, he says, there's this argument, this back and forth that happens because the Samaritans have, have uh, a misunderstanding or a, a, a different way of worshiping. And this is one of the distractions that happens between the Jews and the Samaritans. And when Jesus talks to the, the woman at the well, he, he clarifies for her. He says, it is not whether you meet here where the Jews meet or whether you meet over here where the Samaritans meet. You need to understand that worship is all about worshiping in spirit and in truth a holy God. And so that point is being made by Jesus. But in chapter 9 of, of Luke, uh, we have James and John, two of Jesus' closest disciples. James and John. They were brothers. James and John, the sons of thunder. Do you remember what they do in Luke chapter 9 when they're having trouble in Samaria? Do you remember what they do? They turn to Jesus and says, let's call down fire from heaven and wipe Samaria off the face of the earth. James, John, brothers, sons of thunder. And who is it that is being called to go back into Samaria but the Apostle John. The Apostle John is to go with Peter and go with Peter and make sure that the gospel who is being preached to Samaritans is being preached in a way that is accurate. They're going back to disciple the new converts. And what we find there, when we, when we look at that passage, we find this man named Simon. So what we get here in Acts chapter 8, we see Simon the sorcerer up against Simon Peter the apostle. So Simon the sorcerer is this man that is there. He has accepted Christ, it says, that he has accepted Christ, but he is also doing some damage because he is, he is twisting the words of Philip who has shared the gospel with him. You see, Simon the sorcerer had a, had, had a degree of local fame in the area. In the area, he was known to be one who was a healer. He was honored as one who not only had the power of God, but specifically they say, this man is the great power of God. So that he actually had God's power in him is what people believed. 
And we need to remember when we see sorcery in the Bible, when we see it talked about in Scripture, that this connection is always being made, that this is the work of the enemy. It is always uh, understanding that this is the battle that is happening in the spirit realm that we don't quite understand, but it is happening here in Acts chapter 8. And it's even often associated with, with drug use and, and hallucinations that are being gone on there as well. Whatever power that this sorcerer Simon had, it was from Satan. It was from the enemy, and it was not of God. And the apostle Peter, Simon Peter, makes certain that we know that here. You see, Simon... Simon the sorcerer, when he looks and sees people uh, overpowered by the Holy Spirit, he comes to the apostles and says, let me buy what you're selling. He said, what would it cost? How much money would it take? Simon tried to purchase the power of the Holy Spirit. Here's the problem with that. The power of the Holy Spirit has already been bought at a price. The price of the Messiah, the Son of God, dying on the cross for your sins and for mine. That is the price of the Holy Spirit's work. And so Peter would let none of that happen. He says, let your money perish with you. The most direct way to say that, the way that Peter was actually saying is this, to hell with you and your money. Making certain that we were making no connections to the gospel and and this man Simon the sorcerer. And he calls him to what? To repentance. He says, you repent. You walk away. You turn 180 degrees away from that type of understanding of the gospel because the gospel is free to all, free to those who previously seemed unreachable. Now the gospel is accessible because we have a mediator in Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 8, verse 25 is the result of that repentance. So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem Preaching the gospel where? In many villages of the Samaritans. So this was not just one example, one village, one story that is told here. One thing documented. No, as they came back, they continued to preach the gospel. Those who previously seemed unreached, unuseful, unnecessary as part of the community, now they had full access to the gospel because what God was doing through the Holy Spirit's work here in the book of Acts, we see them preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. Why? Because when God is working through you, He will always use you to reach those who seemed previously unreachable. There may be someone in your life that you think of right now and you say, that person is unreachable. That person, there's no way that they would ever accept Christ. Would you believe what Scripture is teaching us here? That when God works through you, you may be the person to reach the unreachable. That God may be doing that in you. Allow God to work through you. God will reach the unreachable. Here's the last point I want to make this morning. Because when it comes down to worst case scenario, what are you going to do? You need to just, just, just wipe all of that out and, and get this point here this morning. There is no worst case scenario for our God. There is no worst case scenario for our God. Many years ago when we only had two kids and we would, lived in South Carolina and a lot of times we would drive up here and we would spend our Christmases here and then uh, we would head back down south and my sister was going to school in Tennessee. She ended up riding with us and I don't know if you remember, uh, some of you it's been a while, some of you are in this mode right now. Uh, we had a small SUV uh, and, and trying to put kids' 
booster seats and all the straps, the five-point harness, that seat is enormous. It takes up all of the back seat. There isn't room for much else. So my sister rode the 15-hour car ride with us because she could sit kind of sideways, squeeze between those two seats in the back, turn her hips, and she was stuck. She was there for 15 hours, and that was where she was going to be with the two little kids squabbling next to her the whole way, but she wanted to get in in the car with us. And so in the middle of the night, we took turns, and I, I moved over to the passenger seat. My wife moved back in the back to kind of deal with the kids, and she took the, the, the wheel. And she drove uh, through the night. We were driving through West Virginia, if you know that area, if you know the route well. West Virginia, Route 19, the road kind of meanders around. There's stoplights every once in a while. And I fell asleep in the passenger seat because it was the middle of the night. And I woke up because I heard her take a deep breath. <laughs> like this. And something about it snapped me awake. And what had happened was that someone earlier during the night on a snow-covered road had hit a deer, and there was a deer carcass in the road in front of her. And so she took a deep breath, and I woke up. I sat up straight, and everything in me, dads, brothers, older brothers particularly, you understand this, had wanted to jump over, grab the wheel from her, and do something about it, right? If I had done that, what could have happened? On a snowy road in the middle of the night, what could have happened? I grabbed the wheel, spin it around, we go spinning off the road, and in West Virginia, there's never any guardrails on the roads, and so you're in trouble. You're going off the side of the highway. But instead, as I sat up, I just stopped for a second, and of course, she took the vehicle directly over the deer. We caught some air, and I don't know what happened exactly. Came popping back up. The kids are crying in the back, and they all say, what happened, what happened? And she says, I don't know, and she just kept driving. You see in our lives, worst case scenario, a lot of times it's the anxiety, it's the panic that we try to do that. When Jesus has the wheel, we try to jump over and grab the wheel. We say, I got this, I want control. But you see what happens when it comes to being a child of God. There is no worst case scenario for our God. He is in control. We need to be reminded of that. Look what this says. This is Romans chapter 8, verse 35. This is from the Apostle Paul. Spoiler alert, Saul, the one who's persecuting Christians, he becomes the Apostle Paul. He writes this letter to the Romans. This letter says this, Who should separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life Neither angels, nor demons, neither present, nor future, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation. Do you think he's covered everything yet, folks? We'll be able to do what? To separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is no worst case scenario for our God. Stop trying to take the wheel. Maybe you're in the middle of a battle right now. Maybe it's an emotional battle. When you look around us, there's a lot that's going on in this world, a lot that can make you anxious. The virus is real. It's something that is definitely messing with our world, and there's a lot of different ways that the news will stir it up and will make you assume worst-case scenario in every scenario. So if you wear a mask, 
all day long. You're going to die of carbon dioxide poisoning is what they'll tell you. That's the worst case scenario. If you don't wear a mask, it spreads all over the country. And when it spreads all over the country, it wipes out our nation and the, the whole globe dies. So that's bad, right? And so that's the worst case scenario. And then you just keep going through all of these things. If we don't get back to work, then our economy will die. That's the worst case scenario. If we do go back to work, and it's just, it goes on and on and on and on. There is no worst case scenario for our God. We need to be reminded of this today. So whatever your battle is, whether it's a battle of anxiety of just being able to give, God, give this to God, or actually it is a battle between you and somebody else, a personal conflict that has come up, uh, maybe it's uh, with someone at work, maybe it's someone within your family, whatever it is, understand that there's no worst case scenario. When you're looking at that thing and you're saying, there's no way that God can put this back together. We see again and again in Scripture, friends, this is Acts chapter 8. There's, there's 20 more chapters here. This is not the end. God continues to work because His will will be done. Whatever situation you're in this morning, we need to claim and rejoice the truth that Romans teaches us here, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, there's a lot of different ways that we're being told that this is the worst case scenario, or even we're telling ourselves that. And there are times that things look bleak. There are times that things look concerning. But at the end of the day, Lord, you are at work. You are in control. Let us be reminded of that. Let us be reminded that you will always accomplish your will. Let us be reminded that you are in the business of mobilizing people. Lord, will you mobilize us? Will you encourage us to go out in ways that you want to use us and utilize us? Lord, you are teaching us and working in us and forming us and molding us and transforming us into people that, that maybe we weren't a year ago or two years ago or five years ago. And in that process, Lord, you're using normal people to reach the previously unreachable. Lord, let that happen in us today. Lord, we love you and we trust you. And it's difficult at times, but let this text, let the book of Acts remind us that there is no worst case scenario for a holy God who's in charge and in control of everything. So Lord, we put ourselves at your feet this morning. Lord, we humbly bow before you today knowing that you are God, we are not, and there is no worst case scenario for you. We don't understand it all, Lord, but we put our trust in you today. In Jesus' name we pray.